Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us in what is going to be an amazing day. My name is Esther Miller, and I'm one of the board members for the Medical Ethics Society. For the first speaker of the day, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jessica Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an obstetrician and gynecologist at North Shore University Hospital. She received her medical degree from NYU School of Medicine and completed her residency at North Shore University Hospital, where she served as chief resident. In the Jewish community, Dr. Jacob is best known for her influential talks that she happily gives at shuls, schools, and community events. I have had the opportunity to hear Dr. Jacob speak before, and I can attest to the fact that we are privileged to have her here with us today. We thank Dr. Jacob for taking time out of her very busy schedule, being a doctor, mother, and grandmother, to join us here today. Dr. Jacob. I want to start off by saying, is this working? I want to start off by saying that I feel deeply honored by the privilege of addressing this illustrious audience today. Yeshiva University is an institution that is very dear to me. Many of my family have greatly benefited from the education and from the personal relationships that they have with many of the Rebbeim of Wyoming. Part of what part of what I consider my role as an obstetrician to be is to have an, an open communication with the Rebbeim to whom women turn for direction, guidance, and shuvos. And I feel happy when they call me for clarification about something information that they need to have to give a correct psaq about something. Yiddishkeit is centered around that important precept from Parshas Achwemos of V'chai Bahem, and you shall live by them, by them. Our Bayam place extraordinary weight on the sanctity of life and on the preservation of both the physical and mental well-being of individuals, as the answer to the various questions that come up make clear. The detailed questions that the rabbis ask us manifest that respect for the sanctity of life while they strive simultaneously to adhere to halacha. So the rabbis need to be able to separate fact from fiction and fact from personal opinion. That's where medical consultation comes in. Additionally, people don't just consult the rabbim for specific answers to halacha dilemmas. They turn to them for aids too, for guidance in their daily lives. The more Rebbeim understands what the issues truly are, the better they can direct us Hamidim and congregants towards the right choice for them. Today, I'd like to try from my limited experience and knowledge to perhaps help to clarify issues that frequently come up. I'd like to discuss the modern management of pregnancy, induction of labor, home births, cesarean sections, and normal birth after C-section. These are, to me, some of the major issues that we should be familiar with to guide our decisions properly. The Mishnah in the Sefer's Kiddush famously says that Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Abra Guria, Tov Shabarofim Legehenna. The best of doctors are destined for Gehenna. The commentators explain that all doctors have a tendency to rely on their own expertise and will refuse to consult with other doctors and refuse to be Mishabar Libo Lamakom as Rashi states, which means to submit oneself to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Rofei Kolbasar, the ultimate healer. The reason why such behavior warrants a sense of going to Gehenna is it often jeopardizes the patient's well-being, as these doctors are more likely to err in their decision-making um, and, and hurt the patient. It's an allusion to the arrogance and hubris of so many of us physicians. 
It's so easy for us doctors, so privileged to be the shaliach, the Kodesh Baruch to get caught up in the glamour of it all, to start misunderstanding our very humble role and to milk it for the personal gain, honor, and prestige that it can bring, as the quest for cover is a very primal urge in a person. How true this is in the field of obstetrics. Our patients, happy with their healthy babies, feel deeply grateful to us, their doctors, and get emotionally attached to us in a way that is totally dissimilar to how they feel towards the surgeon who took out their appendix or the PCP who lowered their blood pressure. They frequently massage our egos with their heartfelt gratitude and credit us, credit us with things that we have nothing to do with, and we believe them. Somehow, it is only when God forbid something bad happens that we're suddenly convinced it's all ordained from above. So it's not surprising that many in our field have come to believe that it is we who are in charge, to think that almost all of obstetrics is about rescuing the mother and baby from the terrible fate that would surely await them if we didn't use our superior knowledge, judgment, and skill to circumvent disaster. After all, the pregnant state along this line of thinking is an inherently dangerous one. And the sooner we can separate the two entities, pregnant woman and fetus, into two separate units, mother and child, the better. Each healthy baby and intact mother who escaped that dangerous nine-month journey and that ultimately most dangerous of all experiences, labor and childbirth, is a real success story, a medical save, and a job well done. This new attitude that pregnancy must be micromanaged and delivery expedited the minute a detail is off has escalated recently. Gone are those simple days when patients mostly just saw their obstetricians once a month and then they had their babies. Now we've used obstetrical ultrasound for the last few decades to assess pregnancy. At first we only used it when we deemed it necessary. When I had my first baby at NYU 40 years ago, I had no ultrasound at all until I was near the end, when my obstetrician suddenly worried that I looked a little too big. How different it is today. Ultrasound has certainly contributed to our ability to keep babies safe. An early dating sonogram is crucial, as an old-fashioned method of establishing due date by using a woman's last menses is archaic and inaccurate. And knowing the true date of a pregnancy is absolutely necessary. That early ultrasound also reveals the number of embryos developing in the, in the uterus. Knowing if one is younger with a multi multiple gestation is of paramount importance. That big 20-week anatomy scan, that sauna which is used to assess the fetus and all its organ systems, the placenta, the umbilical cord, the amniotic fluid, gives crucial information. But ultrasound is being used more and more in a constant search for problems. The indications for the reasons for doing ultrasound and other tests in pregnancy have skyrocketed. Women are followed closely um, in pregnancy for all kinds of things. Inadequate fetal growth and too much growth. Too much amniotic fluid, too little fluid. For placental and umbilical cord abnormalities. For organ abnormalities like swollen fetal kidneys. For diabetes, high blood pressure, any medical condition for advanced maternal age, for obesity, I could go on and on. There are now a huge number of conditions which render a patient high risk. I am not saying that this is all unnecessary. On the contrary, we're seeing fewer stillbirths, fewer tragedies. I will never forget when I was a resident, when a 40-year-old woman having her first baby after years of infertility came to our labor and delivery unit in early labor. It was almost a week after her due date. 
She was scheduled to have her first sonogram since her 20-week sonogram later that day. There was no heartbeat. No, I would never want to go back to that time. I am suggesting, however, that we have gotten carried away. And the burden of doing all these multiple scans and tests can be onerous. Women are busy juggling their responsibilities in life, whether or not they work outside the home, and going for these tests, which always involve not only transportation, but often endless waits in the doctor's office, is overwhelming once a patient is labeled high risk and is watched more closely. Co-pays and deductibles add up too, and can be a burden for many families. And when you do multiple scans and tests, there will be an increased probability that you will end up needing intervention. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, our parent body, which sets our guidelines and standards, came out recently with new guidelines for close monitoring of pregnancy. And what they base their recommendations on is, in which condition is stillborn more likely? This list represents an explosion of ultrasounds, which are now recommended. And its codification makes it harder for more independent-minded obstetricians to not order these tests. As an aside, what exactly is a high-risk doctor? And when does a woman have to leave her regular obstetrician to go to one? High-risk doctors, or maternal fetal medicine specialists, as we call them, are obstetricians who, after completing their four-year OBGYN residency, then do another three years of study, training, and research. It requires a keen intellect. Most high-risk doctors today work in a consultative role in a collaborative model with the primary obstetrician. They use their skills and expertise to assess the pregnancy and the problems, and they make suggestions based on what they find and what is known about the specific issues involved. The primary obstetrician carries out the plan and uses his skills to achieve the best birth possible within the established parameter. No patient needs to leave her trusted obstetrician to go to a high-risk doctor as long as her doctor is co-managing her care with a high-risk doctor when necessary. The exceptions are if she is going to a doctor who delivers at a hospital that cannot safely support this type of high-risk labor and delivery or that cannot adequately care for the baby. So for example, the woman whose fetus has a congenital heart defect that will require close monitoring and probable surgery immediately after birth should deliver at a hospital that does a lot of pediatric heart surgery, like Cohen's Children's Hospital or Columbia. So this discussion brings us to an all-important topic, more relevant all the time as more and more deliveries are scheduled, the question of induction versus allowing labor to ensue naturally. When is induction um, necessary and advisable, and when is it not? I remember going many years ago at the invitation of Brother Willard to a meeting of Rebellion and Reticence to discuss this issue. As the whole issue of induction of labor is a very complicated one, as you wish I should Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes in Gros Moshe that one should not induce labor unless it is medically necessary. One reason is that one should wait for a Kurdish article to decide when that baby is born. The idea of not bringing on birth earlier is based on a, a Gemara in Tanis which states that there are three keys that are directly controlled by HaKadosh Baruch Birth, and Tchias HaMesim. Tostos and Nita states that since there is no mala who is appointed to determine when a baby is born, there is greater reason to allow it to happen when it would naturally happen. I remember all those years ago confidently stating that most pregnancies can go to 42 weeks as long as they're monitored. But the topic has become much more complex and nuanced in the last few years. Many more labors are being induced today than in those far simpler times. There are many new reasons for why patients need to be induced. 
And I'm not only interested in parsing out which induction is absolutely necessary for halachic reasons, I also don't want to end up doing a C-section that may not have been necessary, but which was made necessary because of an induction gone bad. It is so important for the Rav giving up stock about an induction to understand what's behind the recommendation. Is it valid? Because the rules keep changing and the true rules are often obscured by the louder voices in our field, there are misunderstandings and judgments based upon things that aren't actually factual. A few years ago, I had a young patient who I thought, who I was going to allow to go to 42 weeks. I felt that it was going to be a difficult induction, which can translate into an unnecessary C-section. Besides, there was no reason that I could see it intervene. Her husband asked his rub about the situation. And much to my surprise, his rub, a huge Talmud Chacham respected deeply the world over, told his Talmud that I was wrong about going past 41 weeks, that it was dangerous, and that I should be inducing her in 41 weeks. Of course, I willingly complied with this recommendation from this holy rub. And in fact, everything went beautifully. But I realized at the time that he was just wrong by what his medical advisors were telling him. In fact, it is not recommended by APOC that pregnancies have to be interrupted before 42 weeks because the increased risk of complications doesn't start until after 42 weeks. Now, there are some studies suggesting that there may be an increased risk even after 41 weeks, but not enough for ACOG to change their recommendations. So if a woman's body is ready, then induction after 41 weeks is reasonable. In truth, very few women really get all the way to 42 weeks because at some point during those two weeks of observation, after the due date has passed, there is a solid chance that one of those tests will turn up a problem, such as low amniotic fluid, and induction is then undertaken immediately. Another common reason for inducing for a broken bag of water. There is the risk of infection once the bag of water breaks because the membranes act as a barrier to the entry of bacteria into the uterus. So once the water breaks, induction is recommended unless labor ensues naturally. This is even more urgent if the patient is a carrier of group B strep, GBS, a bacteria that colonizes the bodies of many women. 15 to 40% of women harbor group B strep in their bodies at some point in their pregnancy, though it's only a tiny, tiny fraction of women whose babies develop group B strep sepsis, a catastrophic illness in newborns. Women who carry booby stuff in their bodies during pregnancy clearly don't have to worry excessively over it. It's a colonization shared by many, not this unusual infection. And as long as you induce labor and give antibiotics at the same time, there's no issue. I have to say, while this discussion of booby stuff is not necessarily germane to the topic of induction, I wanted to mention it to dispel the fear that so many have about booby stuff. Because so many of us know someone who has lost a child to or had a child badly injured by groupie strep. Those tragic cases are the rare outliers. Another common reason for inducing labor is the growth abnormalities of the fetus. Now, obviously, while one may expect intuitively for um, uh, the recommendation to be made for too large a baby, it is actually the norm to induce for too small a baby. Because fetal growth restrictions, which is what we call um, the condition where a fetus is not growing adequately, is a leading cause of infant morbidity and mortality. With fetal weight below the fifth percentile, the stillbirth rate is quoted as being as high as two and a half percent. I don't empirically find my own babies to have such issues until we get down to below the first percentile, but I am only one doctor exposed to one cohort of patients. 
And we are bound by these data and by the current rules of ACOG. So we end up producing a whole lot of women with small babies, only a fraction of whom re really need that intervention. You know, unfortunately, we have no way to distinguish a baby that's small because it was genetically meant to be small from the baby that's small because the placenta isn't functioning properly. I mean, thank God the woman who is 4 feet 10 inches usually has a small baby. But unfortunately, we have to treat that fetus the same because it still falls out on the low end of the bell-shaped curve. But it's even worse than that. There are new growth curves which have been adopted over the last few years in the United States which assume a higher weight as the norm. The average size baby on its due date in the United States is presumed to be 8-2. So the baby that we used to consider a perfectly normal size baby, like 6.5 pounds, is now classified as very small. Further, there are two measurements of the baby that are now used. The oval size and the abdominal circumference. Only one of these has to be small for the baby to be considered small. As you can see, we're making big decisions based on ultrasound measurements, when in fact, ultrasound measurements are notoriously inaccurate. But they're the best tool that we have for measuring. So since the stakes are so high, we have to set rules which may be overkill. But it's precisely because ultrasound can be so off that a cesarean section should rarely be performed because of an estimated large fetal size unless the baby has diabetes, unless the patient has diabetes, in which case a very large baby could get stuck during a normal delivery. It's not worth the risk. I, I've had crazy cases over the years. I had a patient a few months ago whose estimated fetal size was 9, 12, done by an excellent maternal fetal medicine specialist. Her belly did not look that big, and I chose to ignore the estimate. Her labor was long and slow. And as I pushed with her for a very long time, I remember thinking that if I'm wrong and this baby gets stuck, boy, was I nuts. But thank God the baby ultimately delivered and weighed in at 7-9. Another important point is that the estimate of fetal size does not necessarily indicate whether a baby's going to deliver or not. I had a patient a number of years ago who moved down to Florida. She called me in a panic at the end of pregnancy. The doctors wanted to do a C-section on her because the baby was estimated as being over nine and a half pounds. I called her doctor in Florida. I knew him personally. And I explained to him that he had nothing to worry about. I'd already birthed her three times. She had a great pelvis. She would do fine. He explained to me that now that he was in Florida, he didn't have enough medical malpractice coverage should there be a problem. And no, he was not going to risk a problem. I suggested to my patient that she just wait until she was in active labor, and then she should go to the hospital. She followed my advice and barely made it. I had a patient who lives in Muncie who switched to me because her doctors were special for her first section because the fetus was estimated as, being, as weighing 10 pounds. Now, she had already delivered babies that were as, as much as 8.5 pounds. I induced her a week before her due date. The baby came out very easily and weighed in at 11 pounds. There are many other reasons to induce. Medical illness, whether independent of pregnancy or caused by it, like diabetes or high blood pressure, mandate delivery before the due date. We are, in fact, seeing a significant rise in the incidence of high blood pressure and diabetes during pregnancy. I'm not sure why. Which partially explains why the label of high-risk pregnancy has practically gone viral. Then there's lupus and lupus-like illnesses. Abnormalities of the amniotic fluid volume were often require intervention. Too little amniotic fluid could cause compression of the umbilical cord and of the blood vessels running through the umbilical cord and stillbirth. Too much amniotic fluid can cause the baby to abruptly flip into the wrong position. 
or it can cause a placental abruption when the woman's water breaks. A placental abruption is when the placenta separates prematurely from the lining of the uterus, something that isn't supposed to happen until after the birth of the baby, when you want the placenta to detach from the lining of the uterus and come out. When the placenta separates from the uterine lining while the baby is still in the uterus and attached to it, it's a catastrophic event that can kill the baby instantly and is very dangerous for the mother as well. Too much amniotic fluid can also cause a prolapse, can also cause a prolapse umbilical cord, which is um, when she breaks her bag of water, which is when the umbilical cord gets swept out of the uterus through the cervix ahead of the baby's head, causing strangulation of the blood vessels in the cord. You can see how, with excessive amniotic fluid, we may want the labor to occur under our watchful eyes in a controlled situation. There are many other reasons for inductions. I'm not going to go into them. Now, in modern medicine, we practice with an evidence-based perspective, and lots of research is done to try to inform our practice in a positive way. But sometimes the opposite happens. When studies are biased and lack objectivity and clarity, they can negatively impact our practice of medicine. So along these lines, and much to the chagrin of many of us, a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on August 9, 2018, referred to as the ARRIVE trial. The authors of this study argued for the induction of all women at 39 weeks, one week before the due date. The researchers looked at 6,106 lowest women having their first baby and divided them randomly into two groups. One group was induced at 39 weeks, and one group was um, allowed to go into labor naturally. Their findings that there was no increase in adverse outcome with induction, but that there is actually a higher C-section rate in those who are induced. Now, come on. This flies in the face of what many of us feel that induction of labor increases the risk of C-section. But now that the study is out and published in no less venerable a journal than the New England Journal of Medicine, the idea of inducing for no reason at all has taken hold. Many of us find these results hard to believe. Perhaps there was bias when conducting the study, perhaps worse. And many of us are unhappy with the concept of inducing for no reason. But the horse is out of the barn. The attitude towards induction is more casual and is more speedily recommended than um, for anything at all. What about the multiparous woman, the woman who's already born children normally, whose cervix is significantly dilated? Perhaps I done a routine exam and I found her cervix to be four or five centimeters dilated. I worry that she won't get to the hospital if she goes into active labor at home, and that's a big deal. I once had a woman who was brought by herself to the nearest hospital where she was never willing to make it to North Shore. She reports that uh, they must have had an intern practice on her. She reports that someone was sewing forever, and then someone else came into the room, took out all the stitches, and did everything all over again. I have another patient who was so overwhelmed and confused as she delivered that she stood up just as she was delivering and dropped the baby on its head. I have another patient many years ago, who started delivering her car while she and her husband were racing to the hospital. It was a dark, rainy night. They'd stayed home too long. He drove, and she was lying on the seat behind him. As the baby started delivering, she swinged out, and her husband instinctively turned around to look at her and drove right into a, a, a pole with tragic consequences. And you never know what's going to happen during a delivery which is precisely why the overwhelming majority of doctors are against planned home birth. Sometimes there may be a tear in the birth canal, which can bleed torrentially, 
and which needs to be sutured quickly and immediately, often requiring special instruments. What if she, her uterus doesn't contract properly? In this case, too, you may need special instruments and medications. What if the baby comes out depressed and not breathing? The midwives advertising safe, safe homers imply that they're superior to delivery in a hospital. How can one guarantee a safe birth without all the support one has in a hospital? Two months ago, I delivered a 39-year-old woman. She had gestational diabetes requiring insulin, so I had to induce her. But I, I did it slowly. I went gently. She delivered uneventfully and easily. No stitches, nothing. One hour after birth, she started de um, developing pelvic and abdominal pain. Soon she was writhing. Her blood pressure started to drop, and a bedside ultrasound showed a huge collection of blood in her lower abdomen. We started transfusing her with multiple units of blood as we took her down to the operating room. The GYN surgeon who ran in to help is an extraordinarily gifted and talented surgeon, but it was almost 45 minutes before even he could definitively figure out the source of bleeding. She had somehow spontaneously ruptured a pelvic blood vessel, and if it weren't for the incredible resources we had at our disposal, a highly skilled surgeon, the nurses who knew not to minimize the patient's complaints and findings, the anesthesiologists who continued to transfuse her with multiple units of blood while they adeptly kept her alive, the OR that was made immediately available to us, the blood bank that was able to supply us with the multiple units of blood that we needed. If it weren't for all these, this patient would 100% have died. So yes, it is unequivocally safer to deliver in a hospital. So back to the woman who's ripe and ready and might, may not make it to the hospital, induction is a good idea and is almost always safe, smooth, and fast. Now we get to the subject that is nearest and dearest to my heart, and that is the unfortunate high C-section rate today. The prevalent attitude today has been one of indifference to the method of delivery. As long as the baby's okay, what's the difference? Now, if that's one's bias, if one does not truly believe that normal birth is a preferable outcome, how hard will one work to try to affect normal birth? There are so many non-medical factors weighing in on a doctor's attitude towards C-section. There's the fear of lawsuits, where doctors traumatized by a previous lawsuit or simply cognizant of lawsuits against others don't want to put themselves at risk. A major lawsuit takes a tremendous amount of time, can bring negative publicity, and is personally extremely traumatic. Doctors often suffer from depression, anxiety, and PTSD after lawsuits. You should read the complaint that a defendant physician is handed. He learns as he read it that he maliciously and negligently committed awful offenses against the plaintiff with his wanton, reckless care. So against this backdrop, you can't imagine the stress sometimes of watching a fetal heartbeat in labor and wondering if for some reason this baby's outcome is bad, will someone blame it on a badly managed labor? What if a baby is born depressed? What if the baby has other issues like neonatal seizures? There are always the Monday morning quarterbacks who will look at a fetal heart rate tracing and point to the drop in the baby's heart rate, what we call decelerations, and claim that those decelerations caused the problem. Of course, these, those decelerations probably were not responsible, but they're there. And the burden of proof, unfortunately, is upon the obstetrician to prove that the labor was handled with a judgment. Then there were the many hours one may have to spend with the patient in labor, and the low remuneration many doctors get for their work. Even if a doctor has honest intentions, the difficulty of sticking, out, sticking it out with a long labor may create an unconscious bias in the physician's judgment 
and may cause him to do a C-section sooner. A little-known crazy fact is that insurance companies pay physicians a significantly higher fee for a C-section. So those doctors who work hard to deliver women normally are actually struggling to achieve an outcome for which they will be paid less. Then there are the sleepless nights and the hard physical labor often required. There's a skill set required to deal with rare or difficult complications, or to pull a baby out with forceps or vacuum if necessary. If a baby's belly is big in proportion to its head, such as for the baby of a diabetic pregnancy where the sugar has not been well controlled, there's the risk of a shoulder dystocia, where after delivery of the fetal head, there's trouble delivering the body and shoulders. This wouldn't happen with a C-section, because at a C-section, you can always extend the incision on the uterus with a knife or a scissors. In addition, a C-section can be scheduled, time designated for the delivery. So with a C-section, office hours aren't decimated, family time isn't encroached upon, etc. I am not saying that all C-sections are bad. C-sections are wonderful when there's no other way to deliver a baby safely. God forbid that we should ever go back to that dark place where women and babies commonly died in childbirth. In poor areas of Africa today, where C-sections are often simply unavailable to many, women tragically develop horrific complications from days of neglected labor. Their babies die and they themselves are left with devastating damage to their bodies. There are many situations in which C-section is better to do, for example, if a placenta is situated over the cervix, a condition called placenta previa, then when labor starts, the placenta will be ripped away from the cervix as it dies, as the cervix dilates, causing torrential hemorrhage. You need to schedule a C-section a few weeks before the due date to avoid labor. If a woman has had uterine surgery, such as a myomectomy, where benign tumors called fibroids are removed from the wall of the uterus, or if she's had multiple C-sections, Labor could cause the uterus to rupture, and again, you've got to scale that C-section a few weeks before labor. If the baby's in the wrong position, breech or transverse, lying across, C-section is usually safer. If the patient is having triplets with rare exceptions, C-section is safer. Um, even with twins, um, you know, the delivery often ends up with an unanticipated C-section of the second baby. If the patient is in labor and the baby isn't coming, of course you have to do a safe C-section. But here, a lot of judgment must be utilized. Then there's the issue of fetal intolerance. Um, if the fetal heart rate pattern indicates that the baby's in trouble, of course C-section should be done, but only after attempts are made to improve the conditions of the fetus by altering conditions such as the mother's uh, blood pressure or her contraction pattern. Yes, there are times when a C-section is necessary, but if a normal birth can be achieved, it is so superior in safety to a C-section. And having multiple children normally is magnitudes of what is safer than having multiple C-sections. With multiple C-sections, there's a risk of developing the placenta accreta, a condition in which the placenta becomes abnormally adherent to the uterine lining and cannot just separate, um, as it usually does, from the uterus um, um, after the baby's birth. It usually occurs when there's a scar in the uterus, such as a C-section scar, which is why the incidence of placenta accreta has risen over the last few years. A true placenta accreta almost always mandates a hysterectomy at the time of C-section and often the loss of a lot of blood. Having multiple C-section also, also greatly increases the risk of a uterine rupture, which can occur if she goes into labor a little early before her scheduled C-section. Rarely, a rupture can occur even before the onset of labor. 
Additionally, when one has a C-section, there's a greater risk of hemorrhage and the need for blood transfusion. There is a greater risk of injury to other organs, such as bowel and bladder, which can both be repaired surgically, but can involve a lot of morbidity. There's a greater risk of ICU admission and of needing to do a life-saving procedure, such as a hysterectomy. There's a greater risk of infection and sepsis and of death and of blood clots which form in the veins of the legs and can travel to the lungs, a potentially lethal condition called the pulmonary embolus. So a major goal of obstetrics should be to reduce the rate of C-section while keeping both mother and baby safe. How to avoid a C-section? First, a patient has to do her hysterics. She must go to the correct sholiath, the correct doctor. It's astounding how much the quality of physicians varies regarding this issue. There are obstetricians who care deeply and they try to do their best for the patient. And then there are those who let the ugly truth be told, don't really care about the patient. They put on every opportunity they can to do a C-section to get out of the hospital ASAP. Or maybe they do care, but they lack the judgment. I'm surprised with the Jewish attitude of seeking the best shaliach, um, that so many patients do inadequate research into their obstetrician's outcomes or reputations. Or perhaps they do recognize the poor quality of their doctor, but they don't really appreciate the significance of it. Perhaps they don't have good insurance, or don't have the time to travel to the right doctor, and don't think it matters enough. In today's hyper-monitored climate, with hospitals seeking to protect themselves against multi-million dollar lawsuits and bad publicity, all eyes are on those fetal heart rate traces, and everyone is looking for those decelerations, the drops in heartbeat, which used to be accepted as part of every normal labor, but which today are poorly tolerated. Interpreting a fetal heart rate tracing is a subjective skill, and one man's um, you know, acceptable fetal heart rate tracing is another one's fetal distress. If an obstetrician gets nervous easily, perhaps he's been sued over something similar, or perhaps he's been criticized at a quality assurance committee meeting for a, a sick baby who had shown signs of fetal distress in a labor which he had allowed to continue, he's gonna succumb to the pressure and prematurely abandon attempts to deliver the patient normally, and he's going to rush to the operating room. We all know who those doctors are. Completely different in their motivation from those who just want to go home, but with the same result, an unnecessary C-section. And then there's the personal mishadness. We de-emphasize this aspect. No one talks about it, but it's real. Gaining 50 pounds of pregnancy really sabotages one's chances of having a good birth. It increases the chances of developing diabetes and high blood pressure. It increases the chances of having a very large or fat baby. It impedes the baby's ability to navigate the birth canal. After all, fat deposits everywhere, including in the birth canal. Patients sometimes think I'm being mean or rude when I chastise them for excessive gain or incorrect eating. Some people even leave me for that. But it's only because I desperately want them to deliver normally. I once had a young Hasidish girl from Williamsburg. She had had a C-section previously for a 10-pound baby. She admitted to a diet of candy and other junk. I begged her to cut out the junk food, but she didn't. And I ended up having to section her when she was fully dilated for a baby that was 10-5. Finally, from the third pregnancy, she knew this was her last shot at a vaginal birth. She ate no sugar. Her baby was 7-13, and it flew out. This patient was an extreme example, but it's really true that how a woman eats during pregnancy can make a big difference. What about feedbacks? Normal deliveries after C-section. 
When a woman has had a C-section, many times she can have the next baby normally, but there are risks. A child labor after a C-section does involve the risk of uterine rupture, which is when the uterus tears open. This risk is quoted as being just under 1%, but anecdotally, I suspect that it's really significantly higher. If there is a rupture, most of the time, we can get the baby out safely, we can um, salvage the uterus, but in a small minority of cases, catastrophic things can occur. They can be loss of or damage to the uterus, loss of or damage to the baby, massive hemorrhage requiring transfusion of multiple units of blood, ICU admission. When one has a trial of labor after a C-section, one has to be cognizant of these risks and labor only in a hospital where emergency care is immediately available and with doctors and nurses who will be quick to identify a rupture and act on it immediately, sensitive to the risks while simultaneously not overreact to any small deceleration or intensified complaint of pain. But women have to be realistic. If they're not likely to deliver normally, they have to accept that fact. Because in fact, there's usually no reason not to have a large family, even for a woman who needs to have C-sections. There's false information everywhere that one can have, cannot have more than three C-sections. I have patients in who have done seven C-sections. Yes, there is an increased risk of placenta oblita, where I said the placenta is abnormally adherent to the lining of the uterus, but the condition is still there. Of course, careful attention to detail um, and technique is so important. There is a big difference in how a patient feels internally, depending on how much care her obstetrician took in doing her C-section. A woman must go to an OB who respects her tissue and respects the desire for a large family, which leads me to the last of my points. A core reason why many obstetricians don't value normal delivery over C-section is that most secular obstetricians view a normal family as comprising two children. If one is not considering that a woman might not want, might want five children or more, there's no reason to kill oneself trying to get the patient to live normally. Modern obstetricians aren't thinking, how can this patient have as many children as she wants? They're thinking, how do we stay out of trouble for the two children that she's going to have? Because maternal fetal medicine specialists, in general, there are exceptions, are concerned only about having those one or two children, it makes it a little bit more challenging to take care of women who want large families. There has been one major positive development very recently in the obstetrical world. Because of the embarrassingly high rate of maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States compared to other developed countries in the world, and since the elephant in the room is that cesarean sections greatly contribute to the high morbidity and mortality, there has been a huge governmental push towards lowering the national C-section rate. It's hard to assess the optimal C-section rate because of complicating factors such as breach, uh, multiple births, previous C-sections, where C-sections are safer and desirable. So the measure that is looked at is the NTSD rate. That is, what is the C-section rate for the woman who is nulliparous, having her first child, term, full term, a singleton, one fetus, vertex, who has her baby in the correct position, head down. Preventing that first C-section of unnecessary is key. New York State is studying the NTSC rate of all its hospitals very closely and will start penalizing hospitals um, whose rates are unacceptably high. Hopefully, we will soon see a more favorable environment for women hoping to achieve a normal delivery because it's going to start to impact the bottom line. I want to end on a personal note. 
Every pregnancy and every delivery will require a tremendous amount of Seattle shine. I am often struck by the attitude so, so many people have about pregnancy and childbirth that it's almost a given, it's all going to go well if one does what one is supposed to do. Hollow, fine that that be true. Unexpected complications arise all the time. Many, thank God, manageable and not catastrophic, and some catastrophic. A doctor who objectively observes must come to the conclusion, if he is honest with himself, that so much is out of his control. His job is to ensure that it goes as well as it possibly could, that he's doing his foolish tacos. The rest is up to us. Last month, to give one small illustration, I was forced to do a C-section on a young woman who had been schlepping to me from Lakewood, New Jersey, out to Long Island for months because she wanted that trial of labor after a C-section. She called me earlier that day, reporting that she felt the baby move less than usual. Thank God she called. I told her to come in immediately. I put her on my monitor, and the fetal heart rate tracing reflected a baby that might be in trouble. I sent her to the hospital a short distance away, and I told her she would probably need to be delivered. It was possible I would need to do a C-section. She begged me to induce her. In truth, I hated the thought of inducing her from scratch, because there's a higher risk of rupture when one does that. But I felt myself caving into her disappointment, and I told her that I would try to induce her. And I meant it. I never lied to my patients. But further monitoring in the hospital confirmed that the baby needed to be delivered, and very soon. There would be no time for the induction. I ran out of my office to the hospital and told her. She cried bitterly. But when I took her to the operating room and opened her abdomen, I found her uterine scar to be very thin. She would certainly have ruptured her uterus had I gone ahead with my plan for an induction. I was saved from making a disastrous decision, but not because of any intuition on my part. As an aside, the umbilical cord was wrapped tightly twice around the baby's neck, accounting for the problem. Thank God, because that umbilical cord saved me from myself. My Shema Kolein daily includes the request that the Shekhinah always be with me in the delivery room, guiding me and preventing me from making human mistakes or from having complications that aren't in my control. Because without that heavy-handed assistance and guidance, things can go very badly. It has been my extreme privilege to take care of so many family members of the Wadi community and of the Orthodox community at large, and I strive to keep up with this awesome responsibility. Thank you, everyone, for listening to me discuss the things that I live and breathe, because I hope that in disseminating this information, I can perhaps make a small difference in someone's life. I feel so blessed that my topkin has always been so clear to me, and I feel simultaneously honored and humbled to have so many incredible patients trust me with their care. Thank you. about the legal aspects of abortion. Then we'll be hearing from uh, Rev. Reese about the halakhic aspects of abortion. And then Rafaelman about the philosophical aspects of abortion. And then afterwards, if there is time, we'll open up the room uh, to questions for all three, um, if we have time at the end.